We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 191 for June 17th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about recording the events going on around us right now and why we should do that. So keep protesting until we get some change because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me on my non-standard setup without my microphone or good internet or even my own computer <laughs> is Doug in Scotland. Hey, everyone. Steven in Calgary. Hello. Hey, I'm just going to mention here, as we're recording, it is June 7th, 2020. The world is a continuously changing place, and uh, and we're going to talk about some of that. So a, a, a topic that Doug brought to our attention uh, that we could maybe discuss is something that I've had many, many discussions slash arguments over in the past. And that is looking at our heritage and how we can basically like what we should, what we should save and what we shouldn't save, how we should document things, how we shouldn't document things. What should we put up as a statue? What should we not put up as a statue? And, and we can get into some of the details on this. And then there's some cool, there's some people doing some some really good, important work related to these things that uh, that Stephen was mentioning. But my common example of, of this topic, Doug, that you brought up is when I lived in the South and my wife is from Charlotte, North Carolina, and we would, you know, drive around for work and different things to these small towns in North and South Carolina. And you always see like these, not like, hundred year old, but like brand new, you know, last 10 year old Confederate war memorials. There's not often a Confederate flag, but there might be a statue of a person that was important or some sort of thing where they're listing the dead, you know, the names of the dead that died in the civil war. And well, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. That was a conflict that, that involved the whole United States, even though it was a civil war. I have a problem with the way that it's presented. It's presented as almost, almost like, glorifying the civil war. I mean, these were quote heroes. Yes, but they were also traitors. I mean, they were on the losing side and it's not like we shouldn't forget the lessons and things that happened, but this does, does this need to be displayed in a town in a, in this new, new fashion? Again, this isn't like a 150 year old memorial. This is a, a, a memorial that was built in the last 10, 15, 20 years with a lot of taxpayer money or possibly donations. I don't know, but, but it was built to to do this. And it means different things to different people. You know, what do the African-Americans in that town think of this Confederate war memorial, this thing, these people died defending the right to keep their ancestors as slaves. You know, how does it make them feel as citizens of that town? I don't know. So that's, this is a topic that definitely uh, something I've thought about a lot. So uh, Doug, what were you thinking about when you brought this to us? What's, what's going on these days that you've been aware of? Uh, well, now that we have to basically put dates and pretty much timestamp things in our podcast because things change so quickly in the next, like by the time we do this in two weeks, who knows, you guys could be under martial law or whatnot. <laughs> uh, so it, for me, it's 10 o'clock on, uh, on the 7th at night. And I just watched a bunch of videos of people taking down um, a statue in Bristol which is a port town in the UK on the West Coast, just a little bit uh, south of Wales. Mm-hmm. And so it's it was a massive port. Basically, most of it was built on the slave trade or benefited in some way from the slave trade. So either directly selling and you know shipping slaves or, as became the case later, they would have imported a lot of materials and stuff from the results of slavery. So that'd be sugar or later on cotton from the United States, uh, Mm -hmm. which then led to the Civil War, which leads to what you were talking about. And so there's a statue of a slave owner, or sorry, not necessarily an owner, but uh, enslaver, I guess would be the correct term. So he shipped something like 80,000 people, 20,000 of them died on the way. 
uh, to the Caribbean and whatnot. And so he had ended up getting a statue and like everything else with a lot of these sort of contentious statues, as it were, it actually happened way after he died. So they only put up the statue in 1895, if I'm managed to get mm-hmm. the history correct on that. And so, yeah, it was, it, and it was one of those things where they were trying to glorify the empire at that time, uh, the British empire. So it wasn't actually about him and it happened well after he died. I mean, his, his shipping and stuff was the 1600s, 1700s. So tail end of the 1600s, beginning of the 1700s. And so, yeah, they tore down one of the statues. Um, but it got me thinking about a lot more in heritage. Um, so his statue, for some reason, is a, it's a listed monument. So mm-hmm. it, it, it has been declared historic of some some importance but thinking about our heritage but i was also thinking about like how much of the archaeology we do and the heritage we have is actually kind of oppressive and most people aren't around to speak about it but like pretty much most any castle that's in like the uk was probably used at some point to like oppress the uh the serfs and the uh, peasantry and, um, you know, they, they, it's where they had their jails. It was not happy times um, at the castles. If you're thinking America, pretty much any plantation is not a great place. Even places like Mount Vernon and Montpelier were, had slavery. And so mm-hmm. I, I was just trying to actually think about like, you know, and even going further back. So like all of those... Um, like the Assyrians, like everything that's in like the British Museum is basically statues of like some Assyrian king and how he like decapitated like several thousand people. And it's like reliefs of like stacking up hands and heads and, um, you know, actually quite a bit of our heritage and what we dig up is probably fairly contentious, probably fairly oppressive as well on different scales and different ways. But I, I was even thinking about, you know, when you're looking at sort of, you know, North American First Nations sort of stuff, not all of that is happy either. Um, I'm just thinking of like the Four Corners where there's a lot of sites that have basically massacres of some sort slash, you know, they killed everyone in the hamlet was probably the right description, only a couple of, you know, huts, but they killed everyone there. They were all related mm-hmm. and then cannibalism as well. So, you know, I'm actually just thinking like, Man, a lot of our heritage mm-hmm. has a lot of baggage with it. Well, and one thing you mentioned too is you know some of these statues in a like a museum or something like that. That's where I know we're we're in a lot of uh, heated situations in a lot of parts of the country, and I'm glad to see as of the the date today, June seventh, that there's a lot of now that the police have kind of backed off in some some cities and let people protest. Shockingly, people are protesting peacefully. <laughs> You know what I mean? Shockingly, in a said in a sarcastic way, when the police aren't throwing tear gas in and, and letting people do it, hey, they don't turn into rioters, right? But now that that's happening, and, and some of these statues either have come down during the, the riots, which I understand, but if we can just structurally take these things down, recognizing the fact that they are offensive to a, to a large portion of the population, and, and not things just related to African-American issues or civil war. I'm sure there's lots of things in history where somebody thought, let's put up a statue or a marker, a monument of some sort, and, and, and honor this thing that happened, and then the culture changes, you know? But that's where it belongs, is in a museum. You know, don't take it down and destroy it. It does have some history and some, some cultural significance to a period of time in history. It should come down. It should come down, but it could go in a museum. So I don't know. As Stephen is saying, I think you should just shout this, Stephen. Just go ahead. Just shout it at the top of your lungs. <laughs> it belongs so. in a museum. <laughs> there you go. So I'm going to be contentious. Does it? <laughs> well, why not? There's so many things in museums that that just don't reflect current thinking, you know, and, and current things that are going on from, from all kinds of, of societies, you know? I mean, there's... There's things about cannibalism. There's things about other dictators and, and different periods of life, of time in, in all societies where things didn't happen the way they do now. And a museum is where we learn from history. So, you know. Well, 
I, I, I say this in two ways because I can see a couple of problems with this. One is like, I feel like it kind of is kicking the can down the road. And we don't, we say like it belongs in a museum, but not all museums are equal. So like I can perfectly well picture a lot of these statues suddenly going into, say, someone who's willing to accept that uh, horrible statues and that, that, that museum that's willing to accept it maybe is the uh, White Power Museum of, I don't know, pick somewhere or subtly racist museum of, you know, there's pretty much anywhere in the world that could be. But I think in general, it's a good idea, but then it gets down to the practicalities and man, that's, that's going to be like a bit tough because not all museums will portray stuff in the way that most people think they will. And I also, not all museums can like, Except uh, I think at a certain point, we're going to actually have to just say melt down some of the statues because like that's just curation. Like museums deal with it all the time and that they basically need to decide what they can and cannot take. They can't take everything. And I, I can already see that just sort of blowing up because you're going to see so like they're going to say, oh, we, we can't accept this. And everyone's been like, oh, it should belong in a museum or something like that. And I think it's it's a bit of pushing the problem onto museums who are also like incredibly underfunded. You know, obviously they're not police forces and are not incredibly well funded. Like I've suddenly learned that most city budgets are now like forty or fifty percent police budgets. Um, so I don't know. I I I'm a bit concerned about this idea of pushing it to museums without like following through. I know what your guys' thoughts. Maybe I'm completely off on this. Well, my thought on that is, the, you know, my, my joke about it, you know, belonging in the museum is more on on the idea that it needs to, uh, that here at this point with it being, you know, like the, the statues being marked up and removed and stuff like that, that this is an important teaching moment, right? Like th- this is, in, in a sense, it, it uh, would be like historic properties that, like meet the exception for the 50 year rule, because it's um, what we're seeing is like important historical events. There, there is some aspect of preservation that should be involved, whether that means like going in and actually putting it in a museum or um, preser- preserving the, you know, the foundations of the statues after the statues have been removed as, as some sort of memorial, not to the individuals, but to uh, the removal and, the historical context there, you know, th- these are things that are worth talking about and we're talking about within the, the legal framework. Like all of a sudden you have cities removing statuary and, you know, a- as they redesign uh, the urban plan, you know, th- these, these spaces are going to have to come under review and it's, it's a way that like, how are we going to uh, address that is, is like, you know, as historic preservation professionals, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I agree with you, Stephen. I, I do think this stuff does belong in a museum. I, one of the jobs of archaeologists and historians, as far as I'm concerned, is to mostly is to document history, right? Our job is to document history, not necessarily interpret it. We do get into interpretation sometimes uh, when the when the time when when the situation permits. But our job is to document it, and then it's up for others to decide. You know, well, what does this mean? How do we learn from this? How do we uh, how do we move on from this? And we can't just pick and choose our history. Our history is our history, right? Our history is good. Our history is bad. Our history is evil, and our history is awesome. You know, I mean, it's everything in between, and we need to wrap all that stuff in to a single package that says, this is what's made us who are, who we are right now for better or for worse. And if we don't like who we are right now, well, then we need to change it. And we can use the examples of our past to in fact change that, you know, like, uh, like Doug was saying with the police and budgets and a lot of those, I haven't really been following too much what the solutions are, but when people are calling for the defunding of the Minneapolis police department, I don't even know what that means. How do you replace that? You privatize it. I mean, somebody, in, in most societies, somebody has to keep law and order. And I don't know who that person, who those are going to be, because you can't really rely on citizens to do it unless you want to live in the Wild West. But it's interesting. So 
But this is going to be a good example for people to learn from as we're documenting these things. And I want to talk about current documentation efforts by archaeologists in the next segment, which we're going to go to shortly here. But it's it's important to document what's happening now because now is history, right? Now is we're, it's history in the making. And if we're not documenting what's happening now, then we're not going to be able to learn from this in five, 10 years. Because even, even five months from now, even five minutes from now, heck, people are going to be uh, – back to their normal routines. I mean, we're like goldfish in this country and, and in the world, really. Uh, we, we learn from nothing. And that's why the protesters need to keep protesting. The police have backed off in a lot of places like Washington, D.C., but and the protesters need to keep hammering it, hammering it, hammering it until there's actual change. And uh, that's what will do it. We're going to go to break here in a second, but uh, we'll lose the chat. And I want to say Bill's perspective because he's typing it here. He says his perspective is, one, leave it right there in the face of the Confederates who draw strength from it, referring to statues. Um, Tag it up, uh, deface it however we want. Let Black Lives Matter and other protesters um, reinterpret it. Let those monuments stand for another 150 years so everyone can get a constant reminder of how we now feel about this. I get that. He says, don't take it down. Let's reinterpret this and let it stare them all in the face. Every Confederate monument, let them see it every day. I understand that perspective. Uh, I don't understand it as much as some people do, but I definitely get that. Let's take a break and come back and talk about some other issues on the other side. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code CRMARC. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing, and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. All right, welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 191. And at the end of the last segment, we were talking about basically living through history in the making. And we were talking before the show started about documenting current things that are happening uh, is in, in fact, you know, we've seen spray painting on police departments, statues, things like that. We've seen, um, as we've already mentioned, statues being torn down. But there are other things. There's a lot of graffiti that's happening. And that's one of the things that is, is currently being done. I, I'll to use an example here in downtown Reno. We had basically one day of protesting and then riots. There's been a little protesting here and there, but it was really kind of just like one day that turned into some a little bit of rioting later in the evening. And the police department was heavily tagged uh, with graffiti, and so was downtown. We've got something called the Virginia Street Bridge, which is an iconic bridge in downtown Reno, brand new built just a couple of years ago. Um, but the, the whole thing itself is is iconic, and it was spray painted with all kinds of stuff. But question is, should we be documenting that kind of stuff? Is it important to this movement? Is it important to the to the meaning and the cause of this movement? In some cases, I think... Yeah, maybe it is uh, to to really see the anger it's expressed in some of these expressions that are being spray painted on the uh, on the bridges. I mean, you could imagine what's being done there. It's not like your your quote typical tagging where somebody's going to leave their graffiti signature kind of thing uh, or draw some sort of mural. No, it's very angry type of things. 
And should we be documenting that? Should we be writing that down? What does that tell us? What do you guys What do you guys think about this, Stephen? We were talking about this beforehand. So, what are your thoughts on on recording this information? And what do you think we could get out of it if we do? Absolutely, I, I think that, uh, and and I, I feel like that we're kind of getting away from like our day to day jobs and 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 you know really our singular lane of like historic preservation on this. Um, but I, I feel like. Um, recording things as they happen is an important part of life, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, that's kind of where journalists come in and, and stuff like that. But also us as citizens, I, I think we have the ability to, or should have the ability to go and record things as they're happening. We all have cameras. We all have the ability to um, digitally record stuff. And a, a lot of fancier technologies like photogrammetry and stuff like that are becoming more and more accessible. And and I think that it's generally better to be recording stuff and kind of sort through what it all means after the fact, right? Like, you know, trying to decide what things mean as they're happening. Like, like mm-hmm. I, I don't know that this is, this is it, right? Like, I, I don't know that, you know, we've had Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations and, and protests um, before in the past and they've calmed down and essentially nothing's really happened. And, and everybody's like standing around saying like, Oh, this is different. This is different. But is it like, you know, we don't know how this is going to play out. I definitely hope it is. Uh, I definitely hope that this is actually the sea change that we're all hoping, you know, like that we're, people are actually working for, but you know, the outcome is not certain and, and the future is yet unwritten. So I think that there's a certain amount of documenting it while it happens uh, is, is, you know, a useful thing. On the other hand, I've seen a lot of concern online uh, about that, you know, that this is potentially endangering the people who are in the protests because it's, it's functionally evidence and being uncritical about how things are documented um, during protests and stuff like that is, is, problematic. This is not something like anywhere close to my, you know, expertise, right? Like this is not what I generally do. I I generally go out and dig holes and look in them. But like, I I can understand the concern of, you know, how do we document what's going on around us without necessarily endangering the people doing it? My bigger question is, I guess, you know, we can document the things that are going on around us, but what can we learn from that in the future that we can't learn from documenting the, I mean, we have a lot of video of what's going on. We have a lot of written things that are, that are happening around and what's going on, but, but recording, you know, I don't want to change our rating to explicit, but F the police, you know, or something like that on the side of a bridge. What does that, what does that tell us that other things don't tell us? You know what I mean? Well, it's. It's just uh, it's adding an extra piece of the puzzle. So, I mean, graffiti is a huge, you know, there's, there's a lot of archaeologists that look at that. So Roman graffiti was always interesting, uh, even if you didn't quite know who Cornelius was and why he was I don't know. A lot of those, uh, a lot of the Roman <laughs> stuff was really X-rated in terms of their graffiti, mm-hmm. so we probably can't repeat most of it. But you know, it's interesting stuff like that, and I think it's it's also, in a way, it's telling a story that is likely not going to be told, in a sense that you know, graffiti. If you're lucky, it survives, but usually it's it's wiped over either with other graffiti or taken off by city workers, you know, painted over power hose to remove it. Uh, but it's interesting stuff. And it's, it's, a uh, it's almost like a social history. It's, it's the history of say, if we, if we were talking about people in the past, we'd call them the common folk, the non-political class, the non-rulers who are usually the focus of most of our heritage and most of the most of history focuses on on them and not not the majority of people, and it's it, so it hasn't quite kicked off everywhere. But uh, here in Scotland, there's a group, uh, the Third Millennia Archaeologists, and so they actually look at basically contemporary archaeology, as it were. And I'm thinking of like Alex Hale, who's at Historic Environment Scotland, and he did this whole project where 
on his way to work, there's an alleyway. It was probably the best way to describe describe it. And so he decided to do a project where he was going to you know, record it. And so just to give some background, Alex, before the merger, was with the Royal Commission. And their whole purpose is to record. So he goes out and he records. His job is to record heritage sites around Scotland of uh, significance and ones that are going to be sort of, say, listed, um, you know, put on a list of important sites. And in general, the most important heritage gets covered by his team. And so he decided he wanted to take his skills and apply it to the everyday. And so he he basically picked this alleyway and just took a picture every day. And it was really for a whole year. And it was super interesting to see a year, like one year in the life of an alleyway and how people interacted with it. Cause it was mainly interaction with graffiti. Um, and like halfway through it, he didn't know it was going to happen. The local government actually improved it and put up a mural and like cleaned it out. And so like it dramatically changed um, the entire look of the place. I'm pretty sure it was maybe a third or halfway through his project. And so if you were to ever like go back and look at it, if you were to look at it now, you would never know. It was actually a bit dingy, a bit rough, and had non-official graffiti on it. So there wasn't this uh, mural that was done by an artist and, you know, it wasn't sanctioned art. It was it was art and words of people who lived in that area or relatively close. I, you know, some graffiti people travel wide and far, but... Relatively speaking, you know, it was it was that history, and that's a bit of history that's not going to get told. And we'd like to say that like um, this is an important event, but as Stephen's mentioning, we don't quite know how this how this goes. Like there are certain what we what's the fancy word for the uh, fascists these days or the popular one alt right people who are trying to start yeah no no uh, the the alt-right or whatever it is, is the polite way of oh, calling right, right, the, right. the Nazis these days. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're trying to start, like, <laughs> a race war. And, you know, if they were to say start that and win it, guaranteed, unless we're recording it, that's not going to make it into any of the history books. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd say it's quite important to try to record this because it's, it's recording – the feelings and interactions of, say, people who are not, I hate to use this word, but like elites. So like as archaeologists, we're recording the everyday with this event, as opposed to like usually when we're recording stuff that happened for, you know, the political class of whatever the culture is, usually. I mean, it's not everything. Lots of archaeologists do really great stuff with the people who are not the rulers of the society, but... That tends to be the focus. So I would say it's quite important. Um, also because it surprisingly maybe the only record, like with digital stuff as well, you know, everyone has a camera now, tons of people taking p- pictures and stuff, but you know, most of the, most of the internet from the 1990s doesn't exist. Like that we have the internet archive for a reason, but that's still like missing huge amounts of stuff. So like just because a ton of people have taken photos doesn't mean 10, 20, even like a year from now, those photos will be around. You have to take a, the effort to properly archive stuff and make sure that it's right. trying to be preserved. At least that's, <laughs> sorry, I, I kind of rambled there for a minute there, guys. But it was just to say, like, you know, this, I think it's really important to do it. And I also think for a practical reason, people should do it as well because it may not that view of graffitied over Confederate statues that may not survive the historical record in 50 years time, unless we do it. You know, it brings up another interesting thought too, uh, recording this history, because I was thinking, especially over in the UK, I've heard that like security cameras and street cameras and things like that are pretty much all over the place. Uh, especially in the bigger cities like London and things like that. But it would be interesting if it were almost mandated that that footage was actually saved uh, and sent over to the historical archives, you know, in whatever country that you're in, because it is 
it is, you know, once once it's gone past a certain time period and the people that were there are gone, and there's no longer really a privacy issue to worry about having that documentation of that street because you don't know. You don't know when there's going to be an earthquake. You don't know when there's going to be a fire. You don't know when there's going to be some other natural disaster that just takes it down. And having that snapshot of it is uh, would be cool from a historical perspective, not only to see the event happen, but to document exactly when it happened. You know, that being said, I feel like as historians and archaeologists, we get a little too documentation happy sometimes. It's like, my God, how many... How many more examples of, you know, insert thing here do we actually need? You know, now when it comes to architecture and events and cities, that I think is super cool to document over time how things change. So I see it as a as a little bit different. But yeah, more to your point, Doug. But I don't know. I don't know. Um, there's a there's a lot of things out there that we could document that we probably should document. And I am. I am all for documentation when it comes down to it. I'm probably trying to play a little bit devil's advocate here, but I'm all for documentation. And actually, probably to piss some people off right now, but I'm all for documentation over preservation. Because I think sometimes we try to preserve too much. And it's like, which snapshot or slice of history or persons or, or group of people's actual culture are you actually trying to preserve here? I, I go back to the the mid-century modern drive here in Reno. And there's, you know, it's it's kind of cooled down a little bit. I don't know why, but there have been a lot of people that were trying to stop the destruction of these mid-century modern or 19, you know, 50s and 60s hotels because they say it's it's characterizes Reno. But it doesn't characterize Reno because there was stuff before that that characterized Reno. And before that, there was Old West buildings that characterized Reno. And guess what? Before that, there were Paiute Indian villages that characterized Reno. And before they got there, there were wild megafauna and actually fish and other big things because this whole place was underwater that characterized Reno. So at what point in time do you say, yes, we're going to preserve all these things because this is our heritage. And I think, I think that's a really hard thing to do in the United States because in the last 200 plus years uh, over here in the West and, and 300 plus 400 years in the, in the East, Things have changed pretty rapidly from a historical standpoint, whereas, Doug, where you live, I mean, you walk outside your house and or look outside your window and you can see castles that are a thousand years old and castles that are just youngins that are maybe 200 years old. Right. But you see all these things. And it's a that's one thing I've loved about going over to Europe and the UK is that it's, it's an amazing mix of thousands of years of history. And that, I think, is super cool. But how do you create that in a relatively young country in a relatively young place you know what i mean to be fair a lot of that's fake <laughs> yeah <laughs> so no no i'm dead serious like uh so like pretty much most places in europe so like if you've been to anywhere in poland anything that has a quote-unquote historic look all reconstructed i mean that all got blitzed literally blitzed the blitz with the uh with the germans and then everything after there. So there's, there's Germany, anything that like quote unquote is historic has been reconstructed. And a lot of people do that even in Edinburgh. So they do a lot of sort of faux walls. So like on the Royal Mile, we lived right across from like the mm -hmm. Radisson, the Radisson Blue Hotel. It was fake stonework to make it look older. Um, they put a facade on it to sort of somewhat blend in. But if you knew anything about like the tiniest bit of architectural history, you'd realize it was just complete, as yeah. they would say here, shite. And so like, there's a lot of that. And actually most of the buildings in the UK are pre, I think they do in pre-1911 or pre-1910, something like that is only like less than 10%. That's something like five or 6% of the building. So most everything is, most of the construction, most of the United Kingdom is actually modern-ish. I know it depends where you want to draw your mm -hmm. line on modern, but there's very, very little old stuff. Um, and this is true of like most countries. A lot of it has been sort of reconstructed, rebuilt to look that way. But, most, you know, a lot of wars have happened and a lot of things have got burned down over the years. And so a lot of it's kind of a, a fake facade, as it were, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit distracted there yeah. um, from our, I'm moving us <laughs> off the topic, but I was, I was just going to say it's, it's, what I wanted to bring us back to is 
I guess I, I probably wasn't making that clear earlier in the first segment is like, I don't think we should save every Confederate statue. Um, I don't think we should save, save every like statue to like a, a shit person in, in the UK. And there are so many like Edinburgh is having a, an issue right now with statues in that there's a hundred and I'm going to get this number wrong, but it's roughly around 103 statues. Only one of them is to a woman. And there's actually more statues to dogs than there are women um, in, in Edinburgh. And so there's a huge debate. And like a lot of the statues are people who are pretty much scum of the earth. Like, at the time, they were known as scum. Like, it's really hard to be like 1700 scum, where like your contemporaries <laughs> were like, whoa, that guy was really scum. Because um, obviously, they're all guys. But yeah, so there's, there's a lot of stuff there. And I'm kind of with you, Chris, is that, you know, everyone's like, oh, take the statues and put them in the museum. I think some of them should be melted down. I actually think it would be more symbolic and have a better connection with history if say you melted down the statues and rebuilt them as something else and then put a plaque saying that the statue used to be that of a Confederate soldier and that you've reused history and actually tie it there so that a bit like uh, Bill's talking about, like leaving them up. I'm not sure if I'd leave them up so much as like recycle (laughs) them, Uh, you know, be green with your, your, um, your, I don't know. It's hard to describe this. Your your repurposing of heritage, but yeah, I would. I, I just think that we're just gonna end up with like, oh, there's a list, isn't there? There's a list on the internet, like five hundred, a thousand Confederate yeah. monuments and statues that we don't in like craziest right. places as well, like um, Minnesota. And I think um, uh, it's before you left, left, Bill said something like Eugene, Oregon, like places that were on. The side yeah. of the north have, conf- you know, not appropriate stuff because they are all built way after the Civil War and basically the height of the Klan to intimidate people. So that's their history. Right, right. All right. Well, let's let's take a break because we've got some comments about that. I've got some other questions for you guys to, to wrap this up from a um, from a CRM archaeology standpoint, uh, you know, the name of this show. So we'll get back to that at the end of segment three. But for now, listen to these messages and we'll be back after this minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. All right, welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, our final segment, segment three for episode 191. And Stephen, you had some comments about what Doug said at the end of the last segment. Yeah, I think the big thing is we need to remember that as part of what we do professionally, that, you know, we document, you know, what's there and and kind of flag for like historical importance and stuff like that. But we're not actually the value keepers, right? Like that what's important as far as what, what, what's out there and stuff like that. You know, we developed that through consultation with the communities and stuff like that. And so the three of us sitting around talking about like what ought to happen to these statues, we're not the people who should be making this, this call. Right. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like it's it's one thing for us to be discussing whether, you know, whether they should be documented, you know, just in case they're removed um, tomorrow, um, stuff like that, and and how we as citizens who live in these communities, you know, like how do how do we talk about this with our families and and, and friends and and um, so on? But really, I, I feel like now's the time when we kind of follow other people's leads, right? So particularly yeah. on this sort of thing, I, th- I think Bill deservedly gets way more weight in his opinion of what happens to these. And if he wants them kept there as, as, as you know, to remind people of that things have changed, then, you know, like that's, that carries way more weight than any opinion about what happens to these statues like I'm, I might have. Right? Right. It also, like... 
something we don't talk about a lot in CRM and archaeology in general, um, as to piggyback off of you, Stephen, is that also remaining to think about recording as well. So there's, you know, when you're working with like, say, a lot of Native American groups in the United States or Australian Aboriginal groups in Australia. Sorry, guys, I just said <laughs> Australia. Like, uh, like the three words I could have said, two of them were Australia. Uh, that was a horrible <laughs> way of saying that. But like uh, those sort of local communities, not everything is recorded by archaeologists working with them at the request of those local communities. And I, I do think also we should probably broaden how we do archaeology as well to not just focus on those, but all communities that are in the area of wherever we're studying or working. But it, it is a question of, you know, sort of taking Stephen's one, one step further is we have been, say, so all the photogrammetry models of the graffiti and the statues and stuff, it would be interesting to see how we as a profession and archaeologists handle it if, say, the communities decide, actually, we want no record ever of these statues ever existing. We want all photos, all preservation, all photogrammetry models removed. We just, we want to forget about it that it ever happened. I'm not sure we as a profession have, well, I know we don't have any mechanism to actually allow that legally. And it'd be great if we could actually sort of think about how we could create a mechanism to do that outside of our legal frameworks. You're right. You're right. Uh, I mean, there's not a lot of uh, recourse for getting any of this stuff done. But, you know, in the last half of this segment, which is going to be a little shorter because we went long on segment two, I, I want to shift gears a little bit to asking you guys really kind of throwing back to the beginning of segment two where we were talking about documenting some of this stuff. And Doug, I think you mentioned, you know, protecting some of the people that are documenting current history in the making. And this isn't a new thing either, by the way, uh, for people that are wondering. People have been documenting, for example, Jason DeLeon has been uh, documenting a lot the things that are left behind from people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border down in, I think, Arizona is where he's been working. But uh, all along the border, mostly, I've been down the California-Arizona side, you know, that area, just seeing where, you know, what's happening in that area when, when people are crossing the border and what they're leaving behind. And he's been documenting that. And none of that's old. So how do we approach this from a Section 106 standpoint? How do we approach this from a uh, what our job is standpoint. If you're on a CRM project right now, and I've worked on CRM projects where like the one of the first ones I did here for a, for a company in Nevada was for a fiber optic line. And we had to walk all the sections where this fiber optic line was taking place. And a lot of that was in the city of Reno, like leading from, from like downtown Reno through parts of the city uh, and then following Highway 395 south, and then there were other cities that we actually had to walk through. I remember walking through Carson City just down the sidewalk. Now, if you're walking down the sidewalk on a Section 106 project, obviously, you know, when we were there, there was nothing that we had to look at. I mean, if there's historical architecture or anything like that, we would have the record, record search for that. And then you do the whole view shed thing with, the, with that from there. Um, you know, is it going to be impacted by this thing? But if you're doing this during... Uh, like the day after protests and, and maybe some rioting or whatever happened, but there's graffiti all over the place. You know, you don't, you don't really technically document that from a section 106 standpoint, but you would document it from a, uh, a historical standpoint. Cause for example, things don't need to be 50 years old to be NRHP eligible. They need to be significant uh, according to the criteria. That's why like the nine 11 site is already a a, uh, a national register site because it was significant to everyone in the in the in the country. So, what do you guys think about that? I know Stephen. What do you guys think about handling these things from a Section One Hundred Six standpoint? Doug, I know you're over in the UK, but let's say you were out doing some sort of CRM project like this, and rioting happened the day before, and you're seeing all these people documenting these things. How would you deal with this? Would you talk to your supervisors and say, "I think we should record these things, like the graffiti and you know stuff like that," or or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, but also like. Even if there wasn't rioting, I would still say we would like, I'm not the person to ask. I'd be like, we should record it all just to, because again, within the legal framework, 
the emphasis is on like important events and stuff, which may not be what we, so what local communities view as important is not going to necessarily translate across to us or be picked up by the legal frameworks in most countries. So let's say you're walking along and there's a burrito stand and that has been in the community for like 30 or 40 years and they're ingrained and everyone knows it. And it's a focal point in the community. Most likely we wouldn't actually know that. So there'll be like historical, you know, investigations and occasionally on, depending on the product project, some people will be sent out to do some sort of ethnographic, you know, discuss with, discussions with people, but that rarely happens in um, say urban areas and stuff like that. And so, I mean, I would say that would be super important to try to document what's important to the local community, but I don't know how I would be able to spin that or spin's not the right word, but I guess justify Mm -hmm. it in a 106 or just any, I I, I guess I'm struggling to see how I could do it. I would hope someone Mm -hmm. else maybe has an answer to that, but there, or even, even here in the, uh, uh, the UK, because that, there's even less of a chance, uh, ability to do that here. So I don't know. Do you guys have any advice on that? Because I, I can't think about how you would, how you and how we do business now. How how you'd be able to stop and have that conversation with people? If if say we were on a sorry, Chris, was it like a fiber optics cable? Yeah, project. Yeah, it was or? a fiber optic cable. Yeah. Yeah, like I mean. I don't know how you'd be able to fit that into the project and how we currently <laughs> put together proposals and bid for things. And then the practicality of like, you know, you're on a schedule. Like I'm pretty sure if, if you're walking through like, you know, neighborhoods with just like <laughs> pavement, uh, your boss has already like probably assumed that nothing's going to be found there and has already like, you know, calculated that out and is just having you walk through, but is expecting you to make like, eight, 10 miles, 12 miles that day because there shouldn't yeah. be anything there. So in the practical way, I, I don't know how to do it. I think it should be done, but I have no idea how we'd go about doing it. Uh, yeah. I'll hand it over to you guys in case maybe you do. Yeah, I don't know. Steven, what, what are your thoughts on this? Recording recording history in the making on a CRM archaeology project. As you mentioned before, a lot of times you're just out in the, I don't know, out in the wilderness of Calgary. But if you were in a more urban area, you know, how would you, how would you handle this? Well, uh, I think like, like for something like what's going on with protests and stuff, um, it's, it's really tough because it is like an exception, right? Like with 50 years, it it might take a certain amount of um, discussion with, you know, beyond, beyond the ship, I'll go into like the advisory council or something like that. Um, up here, it would be a little bit different. You know, I'd be calling the, the government directly and, and they would be making some sort of decision. Although I don't think there's a provision as an exception for the 50-year rule. The 50-year rule is probably a little bit more set in stone, but, you know, you, you could bring it up and have a conversation. The, the problem is identifying what would be what's important and what's not right like that that's the perennial mm-hmm. question for what we do it's, it's like just just because we find a bunch of flakes doesn't make it an important site so typically the way forward with that is you get the national park service at least in the u.s uh, you get the national park service and they do uh what's called a historic context and then from there they identify a bunch of uh, representative uh properties that would that would fit under the um uh, as being associated with this, these events. And then also, you know, like identifying, you know, the certain themes, like, so they'll identify like five or six different themes, the properties that fit these themes. And then you can use that as a guideline for, um, the types of properties and types of, uh, materials that you're seeing, you know, like clearly this would take, I don't know, a certain political shift in who's manning the federal agencies right now. Because I have a feeling that certain presidents of the United States might not smile upon venerating the protests. But I I think that that would be the way forward. The trick is in the interim, like that, that, that's a multi-year project and it's not going to happen until at least there's a new president. And then probably um, further on until like things are starting to kind of play out. So you can see 
exactly where this is going from a historical perspective. Like, you know, is, is this successful? Is this not successful? Mm-hmm. And even if it's not, you know, like, like the, the protests don't have to be successful for them to be historically significant. So yeah, like in the short term, if I were to go out tomorrow and, and do your, uh, you know, your walkthrough, like there might be something relevant and there might be a lot of stuff that's related, but not relevant. And, uh, you know, I don't know, talk to your shippo. Um, as far as the budget goes, hopefully that, you know, the idea that there might be, uh, historic properties is, you know, within the footprint was part of the budget, but yeah, you know how those go. <laughs> Quick question for Steven there. The United States has a president right now. We got something. Shit, I don't know. I'm in Canada. <laughs> you, you mentioned the president of the United States. I didn't know that there was anyone in charge at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, uh, I think we're going to start wrapping this up because, like I said, we went long on that last one. But I'm interested in hearing the thoughts of our listeners because we have a lot of really intelligent people that are doing CRM. They're, they're out there working. What are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on what we should record and what we shouldn't record. Do we need to wait 50 years for some of this stuff or is it important now? And what, and what's going on in your area? Because one of the things we didn't talk about was Canada. Uh, we didn't really have time to talk about what's going on up in Canada. What's being torn down? What kind of, are there any riots happening out here? I see literally none of that news down here. You know, I don't know. I don't know what people are all upset about up in Canada, but other countries around the world are doing these sorts of things and they all have their own, um, their own issues that they're dealing with. So it's interesting, and I want to hear what's going on. I know we have some listeners over in Australia, and I know we have listeners in some other uh, in some other areas. And I think that's probably the most times of the world Australia has now been said on this podcast. Uh, thanks for that, Doug. But anyway, so we're going to end right there. I wish Bill could have joined us because I know he has a lot to say on this topic, but uh, this is hopefully not going to end soon. Hopefully for the sake of our culture, we're going to keep protesting and we're going to keep talking about these things. So we might be bringing some of this up on the next episode. All right. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back again. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. Goodbye. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. (laughs) I heard Stephen say it. You're the producer now, Doug. You gotta step it up. I can hear you. You the can't just be uh, can't just be doing these things. <laughs> Usually you're muted right now, but I can hear you typing and 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 talking crap in the in the chat. Goodbye. this show is produced and recorded by the archaeology podcast network chris webster and tristan boyle in reno nevada at the reno collective this has been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.